still in Nauvoo, more temples, some laws of God. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the, the nature of God, celestial marriage, some polygamy. So. Yeah. Welcome. Before we get into our discussions, should we follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So today we're in Doctrine and Covenants, sections 129 to 132. In these sections, the Lord teaches uh, more about His and the Son's nature, specifically that they possess bodies of flesh and bone. We also receive blessings based upon obedience to the laws upon which they're predicated, and we also learn more about gaining knowledge based on diligence and obedience. Mm -hmm. We're taught that marriage is required to obtain the highest level of the celestial kingdom, and the Lord makes promises of kingdoms, thrones, principalities, and the first resurrection. So there's quite a few things that we can talk about in these sections, but we're going to focus in on three in particular. The embodiment of God, which is to say God's physical body, obedience as the first law of heaven, and the doctrine of celestial marriage. So in order to help us to dive deeper into these scriptures and understand the context, we have invited our good friend, Lisa Olson-Tate. Lisa, can you join us up here? Welcome. Glad to be here. Lisa, I'm really grateful that it's you here today. <laughs> Thank you. A woman who knows a lot about these sections and can help us through some of these topics. So Lisa, you are a historian at the Church History Library. You're a writer and author, especially on church history topics. You received your PhD in University of Houston in American Literature and Women's Studies. That's right. So great background for our discussions today. Thank you so much. Uh, before we get into our discussion, Lisa, I'm wondering, was there anything in these sections that kind of stood out to you as especially meaningful or significant, or maybe something we need to know going into it to, to better understand them? Well, as a historian, of course, I think it's important and interesting to think about the context mm -hmm. of these sections. They're a little bit different than a lot of the other sections in the Doctrine and Covenants in that they are excerpts of teachings that Joseph Smith gave. This is happening in the years up to the temple being dedicated. He's teaching the, the saints whenever he has the opportunity. Some of his clerks and friends would uh, accompany him and a lot of times would take down the teachings that he gave. And so that's where the text for 129 to 131, that's where those come from. I love that you bring up Joseph Smith and his, his desire to, to learn and speak about the temple. I mean, he, he doesn't know this, I would imagine, but he's going to be martyred in 1844. And it seems from those who have written about his life at this time that this is his number one focus. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can jump right into it and get into this discussion of teachings that are unique to the, to the Latter-day Saint Church and talk about the embodiment of God. In section 130, verse 22, as I was reading through this, it's kind of stuck out to me. It's something that we kind of take for granted as Latter-day Saints in our belief that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's and the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but a personage of spirit. Uh, were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. This idea that God has a body of flesh and bone is, is unique to Latter-day Saints. To my knowledge, no other Christian tradition believes that God has, is embodied in the sense that we do. I'm, I'm curious, Lisa, though, um, why is it important to, to understand that, do you think? These teachings are really crucial in shifting our understanding about God and about ourselves and about our relationship to Him. Mm -hmm. They break down this traditional Christian teaching. And remember, this is what Joseph Smith and the early Latter-day Saints would have come from, that there's this unbridgeable gulf between humans and God. Knowing that God is embodied helps us know that he understands us. Mm -hmm. He understands what it's like for us to be embodied. Yeah. We see that in the scriptures where it talks about Christ mm -hmm. and the way that he experienced the, the sorrow and the suffering and the sickness and the weakness mm -hmm. that we experience as human yeah. beings. So when we go to our Father, when we have faith in Christ, we know that they understand us. Yeah. So in a sense, theologically speaking, Joseph Smith is kind of bridging the gap between the Creator 
and the creation, which is us, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So why is it important for you to know that Heavenly Father has a body of flesh and bone? Weston? The fact that our Heavenly Father has a body of flesh and bones really makes him a lot more like personable to me, a lot more relatable. Because I feel like oftentimes we're tempted to think of Heavenly Father as kind of like the genie from Aladdin, like great cosmic power, it can just be whoever he wants to be, but isn't like someone that you can really relate to all that well. But knowing mm -hmm. he has a body of flesh and bones and that he made us in his image, it makes him more like your actual father that you have on earth, someone that you can talk to, that you can see, that you can be with. And to me, that just makes my relationship with them all that more personal. Excellent. Thanks for that. In fact, Elder Maxwell, um, in one of, one of his books, talks about the, the difficulty of, of a prophet and apostle in trying to explain two things. One is how close we are to God in our relationship with him, but yet how far away we are from God and in, in, in that we have so much to do in order to become like him. I think that's important, Barbara. We also have to be careful that we don't try to make him in our image. Right. Yeah to say that he is God and that he has all power. Those are things that we cannot fully comprehend mm -hmm. in, the, in the state that we're in right now. And that shouldn't make us fear him or cower in a pathetic way, but it should give us a respect. Or as Joseph said, to learn our exaltation will be a great work even beyond the grave. Yeah, excellent. So this has been a great discussion on the, uh, this idea of an embodied God. Uh, Let's transition now and talk a little bit about obedience and its importance as the first law of heaven. So we see that obedience specifically in section 130, and it starts in, in verse 18, really, where it says, whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. Uh, verse 19, and if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. And then finally bringing into the law, there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. I think it's critical in that case to understand that Joseph is speaking to the people in Ramus, uh, Illinois. These are very righteous. They've kind of proved themselves. Joseph is trying to help them understand the importance of light and truth that's associated with the temple. He's gonna continue on with that idea of section 93 and tying it into obedience specifically to these laws of God that will help people become like him and gain light and truth. Gabby? Yeah, so actually I have more of a question. Mm -hmm. I feel like the times where I've gotten lost in this concept of being overly obedient, mm -hmm. I'm obedient to maybe people or things that are authoritative, but mm -hmm. really the Spirit is telling me something different. Mm -hmm. So how do we discern between um, who do we obey and who do we not? Yeah. I think you have to pay a price to understand the Spirit. The greatest reason to obey a law of God is because we love God. Uh, sometimes we obey laws out of duty or sometimes we obey laws out of fear, but the greatest reason to obey a law of God is coming unto, unto Christ and knowing who he is, building that relationship. So you're not just simply obeying a law, you're obeying it for a reason. Thank you so much. Verse 21 is really action and reward based. You're obedient to a specific law and you receive a specific blessing. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think, how do we reconcile seeing perhaps people who may not be obedient to those laws who still have all of those blessings? Or perhaps we feel like we are being obedient to those laws and may not feel like we have received those blessings as well. Like, why am I crying about this? <laughs> because, like, <laughs> because this is real. We yeah. care about it. Like, how do we still have trust in the Lord's promises for us, even if we don't see them? Yet, right? Yeah. It hits home, I think, to a lot of us. 
I was told in a blessing at one point that I would have children. Well, when you're 25 and you don't have children, that's okay. When you're 35 and you don't have children, it's getting a little scary. When you're 40 and you don't have children, then you're really worried, especially when you go to the doctor. The doctor tells you you have no chance of having children. And you've done 10 IVF cycles and everything you can possibly do, and there are no children, right? How do you trust in the Lord? I mean, part of it is you gain a relationship with Jesus Christ and you trust that perhaps that meant eternity. And that's, that's not compromising. That's increasing your faith and it's paying a heavy price to know that although some things don't work according to our timing, we are learning to trust in the Lord and it's going to happen. In my life, I was blessed at the age of 45 to have two children that completely came out of nowhere into my life. I just received a random phone call and I had basically given up with my husband on that topic. You get to know Jesus Christ. Trusting in God is not easy, especially when the heavens are silent. Obedience doesn't mean that God's always talking to you. Sometimes obedience means that he's going to trust you enough to let you mature on your own for a while. But sure is hard and it sure is lonely at times. Any thoughts on that, Lisa? If we look closely at what is being said here, in talking about obedience to law, we need to understand what law is. This passage starts out by talking about intelligence. Think about what else the revelations say about intelligence. It's the glory of God. It's light and truth. The idea of law is the principles that will enable us to grow in light and truth. Obedience is not just some price we pay so that we can buy blessings. That's often the way that we default to reading this, but I think we need to have a higher understanding of what law and obedience is. It's about becoming. It's about what will enable us to grow and to embody the principles, the characteristics, the qualities of light and truth and power and intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. All the little blessings we see along the way, they, their cumulative effect is to help us come into our Heavenly Father. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's something that I focus on. Like, you know, we've had questions about why, why I pay tithing and I'm not seeing the blessings. You know, I'm living the commandments. I'm not uh, getting a spouse and, and things like that. But if the end goal of obedience is to come into our Heavenly Father and become like Him, that might be the goal that we can keep our eye on and have faith that, that things will work out eventually. Sometimes it might be worth asking the Lord, what do you see as the blessings that you have given me? Mm-hmm. How, how can I understand what you want to bless me with and what you have blessed me with in a higher way mm-hmm. so that I don't default to this transactional thinking about blessings as some mm-hmm. one-to-one thing that I earn mm-hmm. from God? Yeah. I'm almost on the opposite side of the pendulum. Why is obedience the first law of heaven? Why is it expressed and taught so often? Yeah, Matt. So you can get on the good side of your parents. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that the truth? Yeah. I mean, Matt, we say that almost flippantly, but who was Christ more obedient to than his father? If you want an example of obedience and the good that comes out of obedience, it's Jesus Christ in the pre-mortal life saying, I will do thy will. And it's Jesus Christ coming to the people in third Nephi saying, I am he who did the will of the father in all things. Obedience is to do what God wants us to do so we can become like him. Yeah, I believe and, so too. And it's built on the premise that we can't do it by ourselves. Amen. Right? Amen. So this has been a great discussion of obedience as the first law of heaven. Let's transition now and talk about the doctrines of celestial marriage. Lisa, are you ready? Do you want to give us some context here? Yeah, how long have you got? 
Ten not minutes. long enough. <laughs> I think the first thing to understand is that for Joseph Smith and the early saints, the understanding of marriage, marriage as an ordinance, as related to the priesthood, this is an understanding that comes through revelation over time. So kind of line upon line? Kind of line upon line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These texts that we have here in the Doctrine and Covenants represent the Nauvoo-era stages of that development. There seems to be evidence that he's teaching at least some of the early saints by the mid-1830s that marriage can last beyond this life, but then it's in the early 1840s when Joseph is beginning to teach this principle where it really comes together with temple ordinances and takes the shape that we have here. This is the doctrine of celestial marriage that we're talking about. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees, and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into the order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Baptism is the gate to the celestial kingdom, but celestial marriage is the gate to exaltation. This sets up a little bit more to what section 132 is going to give us, right? And it's a unique understanding that we have as Latter-day Saints that exaltation is not an individual matter. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that we are saved in relationships. Mm-hmm. That's a really beautiful doctrine that we have. The law of celestial marriage is typically a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. There's an exception of polygamy from time to time between a man and several women, right? But the law of God is monogamy. So Lisa, I know we get a lot of our discussion of marriage in its various forms in section 132. What do we need to know? What do we need to understand when we're looking specifically at this section? I think it's important to understand a little bit about the context for this revelation. The church has given us many resources for developing that understanding. Things like the gospel topics essays. There's a really great article in the little book called Revelations in Context that talks about section 132. Saints covers quite a bit about this, both in volumes one and volumes two. And there are church history topic articles as well. I think one of the important takeaways from this revelation as we have it here is to understand just how deeply rooted the early saints and Joseph Smith himself were in the Bible and how much they understood the restoration, including the idea of plural marriage, to be a restoration of biblical practice and principle. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in the text here as well. So we've been talking a lot about marriage and and plural marriage as it appears in section 132. Uh, We have a question from a uh, listener at home. Hi, I'm Donna from Alberta, Canada. And I had a question about Doctrine and Covenants section 132. When I read about the new and everlasting covenant in there, it sounds like it's referring to both monogamous marriage and plural marriage. And historically, it says that plural marriage was used to raise children up unto the Lord. So my question is, will plural marriage be reinstated one day, like, for instance, during the millennium? Yes or no? The answer is we don't know. Yeah. And you can go to the gospel Mm. topics on this. Uh, There are are early teachings that you can find by Brigham Young and others on the topic of polygamy and how important it is at the time. But that was his time. People will often say to me, you know, I really have a problem with polygamy. And I say, well, that's good because it's called adultery right today like <laughs> it's not polygamy today it's actually breaking the laws of god if you're living that law now and mm. if 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 i'm living this day does that mean i have a problem with polygamy then no i didn't live then but today if somebody said to me will you practice the law of polygamy i would say no unless <laughs> unless it was somehow coming from a source and i needed the prophet and it would take the kind of inspiration that it took for the people living then 
What's behind that question a lot of times is fear. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's, will I be forced? Yeah. We know that God honors our agency. Yeah. If at some point we have a different understanding of it, then our participation in it would be because we saw things differently than we do now. Yeah, that's a very good way of saying it. There are many stories of revelation and inspiration and faith and sacrifice that came out of this practice of plural marriage. They understood it to be a principle of sacrifice. One of the difficult things for us to navigate in terms of plural marriage and early plural marriage is coming to terms with how differently that culture thought about women and about women's agency than the way we think about it now. It was a different context. And that makes for some of the aspects of early plural marriage that we find, frankly, distasteful at times. People don't commonly know this, but we have exactly nothing from Emma firsthand about plural marriage. We don't know anything about what she knew, what she was thinking, what her experience were. Joseph found himself caught between what he understood to be two competing and irreconcilable imperatives. He felt that he had been commanded by God to restore this principle of plural marriage, to practice it himself. He loved Emma. He knew it was hurting her. And how did he reconcile that? We don't know the full context of Joseph and Emma's relationship and what the discussions were, what Emma knew, when she knew it. So that's an example of something that's in this revelation that speaks to a context that we only have a partial understanding of. There's a principle here that the Lord puts into the hands of mortal human beings to work out, and that they're going to do that according to how they understand the world and according to the context that they live in. And the women especially, over and over again, testified that they'd been refined, that they had learned things that they wouldn't have learned any other way. And that this revelation gave them the basis for coming to that understanding. And so there's a lot in this section that is specific to the context, that's specific to the people and the relationships involved. But then there is the doctrine. And I think that it is encapsulated for us in verse 13 where the Lord says, everything that is in the world, whether it be ordained of men by thrones or principalities or powers or things of name, whatsoever they may be, that are not by me or my word, saith the Lord, shall be thrown down and shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord your God. For whatever things remain are by me and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. This principle is important to understand Nothing is going to last beyond this world except those things that are ordained and sealed through the priesthood. And then that principle gets applied particularly to marriage. It's, it's almost an if-then concept. When you look at this, if that covenant is not by me or by my word, which is my law, and is not sealed by the Holy Spirit, so those two things are important, through him whom I have anointed and appointed unto this power. But if you do those three things, then, then you get the promises in verse 19. Notice it doesn't say if you practice polygamy. That's not what it's saying here. If you do these three things, if you live that law of celestial marriage, then verse 19, these are the promises for those who are sealed up into these things. Things that you will be inheriting. 
thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths. And then you continue on, and they shall be gods because they have no end. Therefore, they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power. And again, we, you can look back to section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants and see how you gain power and power is a line upon line process. But this is the promise for those who are sealed and keep those covenants of sealing. They will become gods and goddesses. Now, I think it's important to remember too, and this is something that's unique to our theological tradition, we understand godhood to be a pair, uh, which is to say um, our relationships with our spouses in this life, they, they anticipate and foreshadow what we can achieve after this life. And of course, achieving that goal isn't always easy. And we have a viewer at home who has a question about this struggle. Hi, I'm Liza Johnston. I've been talking to some friends recently who are divorced, others who have been single longer than they wanted to, and others who are struggling in their marriages. I'm just wondering how we can count on the promised blessings found in DNC 132 when the reality of a celestial marriage seems so far away on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. That's an excellent question. And I mean, in my own personal experience too, marriage has been one of the most difficult, but, but also one of the most rewarding things that I've experienced in my life. Uh, Lisa, any thoughts on that? If you think about marriage and the way that marriage exists in this world, it's a fallen world, right? In mortality, like it's a mess a lot of the time. There are a lot of different ideas about marriage. There's a lot of different forms that it takes. And when we talk about the ideal version of it as outlined in the scriptures here, that can be really painful when it feels like that's out of reach or, or not our experience. And I think we just have to acknowledge that and allow for that within this mortal realm. I think it matters what we believe about God. If we believe that he wants our happiness, that he will do all things to help us grow and progress, then even through the things that we don't completely understand, that we can trust in him, that that is the ultimate goal, even if we can't see how we're going to get there. Just to offer maybe a counterpoint or a complementary point, there have been times in my marriage where I felt like I've tasted a little bit of heaven. You come home with your wife, you sit down on the, on the couch and you fall asleep together and you wake up and you're holding each other. In those moments, for example, you know, when, you, when you're full of the Spirit and you see through God's eyes and you get a sense for, for the ideal, I think to some degree we can experience what it's going to be like there when we're living how we should be, when our, when our lives are based on the principles of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't throw away the ideal because our experience doesn't yeah. reach it. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to say if you're the one whose experience doesn't reach it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I had many occasions before I was married that people would say, you know, how, how do you talk and teach about eternal marriage when you don't have one? And I think I feel a desire to have an eternal companion. Mm -hmm. So I know it's of God. And by not yeah. being married doesn't mean that you don't have longings, right? And, and there, there is a spirit that confirms to you that, that there is something missing. It's okay to be missing something. And I, I think that that's one of the things that helps us continuing to, to go forward is because we recognize that there is a lack of something that we long for. And I would argue that the love you experience in a marriage is not unique to a marriage. Like there's something special about it, but I loved people before I met my wife. And I just say that to, to recognize that the, the life of a person, like a person who's not married or a person who doesn't have an ideal marriage or something like that, like that doesn't preclude them the possibility for getting a taste of what things can be like uh, in heaven. And I would say yeah. the same thing with children. And people would say, you don't know, you don't know how to love until you have children. Well, I, I think I did. And yeah. I have children now. But yeah. I'm very confident that I learned to love my children because I loved 
other people's children and because I learned to love. You can learn a great deal about love without having a companion. Yeah. But there is something to be said about that companionship and that learning to love outside of yourself. Yeah. So this has been an excellent discussion on the doctrine of celestial marriage. Thank you so much, Lisa, for your expertise and just the dedication in your life to, to learning this and internalizing this. Lisa, we really can't thank you enough. Thank you for your, your faith, your testimony in, in the context of, of a difficult historical time, but also in the context of wonderful doctrine that will give us the opportunity to have eternal families. Thanks. We'd like to thank you also here in our studio audience. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate your questions, your, your thoughtfulness, uh, your examples. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And to those of you at home, thank you for your questions and comments that you sent to us via social media. Uh, we hope you can join us sometime in the studio, but if you can't, we hope you'll tune in next week for Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.